I'd like for us to turn this morning to Luke chapter 15. gave me this message on Wednesday night and a lot of things have happened since Wednesday night and the temptation is to think that maybe I'm giving the wrong message now. Um, But the reality is is that God knew all of this stuff that was going to happen when He gave me the message on Wednesday. And so all I can do is go forward with what He's given me and trust that it will meet needs here this morning. So that's what we're going to do. So Luke chapter 15, and we'll read the whole chapter. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Him, that is Jesus, to listen to Him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, and go after the one which is lost, until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost, and has been found. Let's pray. Father, this is Your Word. It's not what we've cooked up. It's not what men have written. This is what You have spoken. And so, Lord, we ask You that You would meet needs here this morning. God, we need the help of Your Holy Spirit to understand Lord, we need the help of Your Holy Spirit to apply these things to us. Lord, we need the help of Your Holy Spirit to push back the darkness, to push back the lies, to push back the enemy who would desire to come in and snatch the Word out of people's hearts. Lord, we look to You now. Breathe upon this Word. Give it life, Lord. Make it real. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to be looking this morning at what is been called the parable of the prodigal son, but instead of focusing on the younger son, who tends to get most of the attention, we're going to focus on the older brother. And a lot of times when this parable is taught, it's taught solely as a picture of salvation using the example of the younger brother. The younger brother leaves home for a distant country and he's alienated from his father who is represented, uh, who represents God in the parable. He spends all that he has and the pleasures of his sin run out, leaving him miserable and broke physically, emotionally, spiritually. But he comes to his senses, he repents, and he heads back to his father, which represents his conversion. And then far from being put out with him, the father receives him back with open arms, lavishes gifts upon him, and throws a party for him, rejoicing in his return. All of that is true, and that's wonderful. But you see, the thing here is, is that Jesus' point in this parable is that there's not just one lost son. There's two lost sons in this parable. They express their lostness in different ways. The rebellion of the younger son was an external kind of rebellion, and the rebellion of the older son was internal, but they were both equally lost. And the confrontation that the father has with this older brother at the end of Luke 15 is not simply tacked on as an afterthought, but it's actually the climax of the entire chapter. In other words, everything else that Jesus says in Luke 15 is leading up to the confrontation that the father has with the older brother. Now, why do I say that? I say that for two reasons. First of all, consider who the audience is that Jesus is telling these parables to. Who is he directing them to in Luke 15? 
We'll go back up to verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 3. So he told them this parable, saying, He told them this parable. Well, who is the them there in verse 3? Well, it's the scribes and Pharisees in verse 2. That's who he's directing the parable to. The them are the Pharisees and the scribes who were grumbling at Jesus for receiving sinners and eating with them. And so everything that follows here in Luke 15 is directed first and foremost to the scribes and Pharisees. They're the intended audience, the primary audience here. And the climax of everything is when Jesus gets to the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son because it's the older brother who represents the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees. You see that? In other words, the older brother is the scribes and Pharisees. That's the whole point. That's the punch. He directs these parables to them, and then he lands that knockout at the very end by confronting their self-righteousness by casting the older brother in their place. So I say again that everything that Jesus says in this chapter is leading up to the older brother because of who the audience is here, the primary audience. But secondly, the second reason why I say that the older brother is the climax of all this, is also found in verse 3. Notice what it says in verse 3. So he told them this parable. He told them this parable. Now notice something strange here. It says in verse 3 that Jesus told the Pharisees and the scribes this parable, singular but then he goes on to tell three parables. Now, how does that fit? What is, he, what is he saying here? Doesn't it seem a bit odd that he would say this parable, that Luke would say Jesus told this parable, when in fact Jesus goes on to tell three parables? Why does he do that? And I think the answer is that Luke wants us to view these three parables in Luke 15 not as three separate parables, but as one single parable that all have the same basic point said several different ways. And it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that when you read down through here, I mean, you could tell just when we read down through it a minute ago, that there's some striking similarities in all three of these parables. In each case, there's something that's lost. You have a lost sheep, you have a lost coin, you have a lost son. In each case, there's diligent searching for what was lost. It's a little harder to see that in the parable of the prodigal son, but the fact is, the father saw the son while he was a long ways off. Apparently, the father was looking out for his son's return. So there's diligent looking on the part of those who lost something in each parable. In each case, what once was lost is found in every, every case. And in each case, there's great rejoicing on the part of those who received back what they had lost in all three parables. So it's clear that these three stories are extremely similar to one another. And the reason why that is the case is because all three are meant to be read as one single parable directed to the scribes and Pharisees in order to rebuke them for their self-righteous attitude toward Jesus' ministry to the religious outcasts of society, the tax collectors and the sinners. And you think about it, I mean, he is, Jesus is really rebuking the scribes and Pharisees pretty hard with these parables. He does it in kind of his own unique roundabout way, but it's pretty hard rebuke. I mean, he's saying, look, if a guy loses a sheep, he's going to go look for it, right? If a person loses a coin, they're going to search the house until they find it. I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? Well, what am I doing with these tax collectors and sinners? You see, I've lost something, and I've come into this world to find that which I've lost. 
That's what I'm doing here, you see. And instead of rejoicing in the fact that these people are coming into the kingdom, you would rather exclude yourselves from the celebration because of your self-righteousness. That's the general idea that Jesus is getting across here to the scribes and Pharisees. So when you view the chapter as a whole, you can clearly see what is happening. Jesus is telling a single parable, directing it to the scribes and Pharisees as a rebuke. And like any good storyteller, Jesus leaves the climax of the story for the end. And that climax, again, is the confrontation between the father and the older brother. Now, here's why I'm spending time on this. This is what I'm trying to get at. We need to realize that we miss the point of Luke 15 if we don't give any emphasis to the older brother. He is the one Jesus is leading up to here because it's the older brother who represents the scribes and Pharisees. And it was the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus was specifically directing this parable to. I mean, there's all kinds of truth you can get from this whole chapter. But the point I'm trying to make is is we've got to get around to the older brother eventually or we've missed the point. Okay, That's what I'm trying to get at. And it's also so important that we get this emphasis on the older brother because older brothers, quotes, are alive and well even in our day. When you get right down to it, who are these older brothers? Who are these scribes and Pharisees betrayed by the older brother? Well, these are the morally upright, clean-living, thoroughly religious people who are thoroughly lost, who we see around us all the time, and some of whom sit in these very seats Sunday after Sunday. That's who these older brothers are. They know their Bibles, they pray, they give to the needy, and their hearts are as far from God as the prodigal son's heart ever was. And so my hope this morning is that there would be some older brothers exposed here and brought into the midst of the joyous celebration that results when God receives back what was lost. But the message isn't just for the lost here this morning because the roots of the older brother run deep. And many Christians are still affected by an older brother mindset without even realizing it. So I'm not just speaking to the lost this morning, but I'm also speaking to Christians who still have remnants of the older brother in their lives that need to be rooted out, that need to be brought to the light and exposed and dealt with. So what does this older brother look like? What's this older brother mindset look like? Here's what we're going to do, Lord willing. We're going to consider four characteristics of the older brother. There's a lot more that could be said, but we'll just stick with four. Four characteristics of older brothers. And then we're going to look real briefly at the response of the father to the older brother. And, of course, the father in this and the last parable here represents God the father. And then we'll close with some specific applications. All right, so four characteristics of the older brother. The first one is this. He despises grace. He despises grace. And I begin with this one because in some ways I think everything else flows out of this. He despises grace. First and foremost, the older brother was a hater of grace. And we can see this in verses 28 to 30. Let's read those again. But he, the older brother, became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. In the mind of the older brother, blessing should follow on from obedience. I mean, it's so simple, isn't it? 
If you obey, you earn blessing. If you disobey, you forfeit blessing. And clearly, the prodigal son had disobeyed his father, thus forfeiting any blessing that the father might have given him. It's so clear-cut, isn't it? It's so black and white. It's so obvious. And it's also so unlike the grace of God. Beloved, we get used to this, but the grace of God is radical. It's astonishing. It wasn't just radical and astonishing 2,000 years ago. It's radical and astonishing today. And here's why. You see, we're born into a world, we're born into a culture, we're saturated with a culture that is a performance-based culture. Now think about this. Let's think of here's a new baby born into the world. We'll just call him Timmy. It's the name I could come up with. So, so here's, here's Timmy, just a new baby born into the world. Okay, Timmy's born into a good moral family. So from an early age, his parents strive to teach him right and wrong. He's taught that if he does these things, he gets rewarded. If he does these things, he's punished. Okay, Blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. As Timmy gets older, he starts going to school where he finds out that if he gets good grades, certain privileges and blessings follow. If he doesn't make the grade, certain negative consequences follow. Once again, blessing for positive performance, punishment if he falls short. Timmy maybe wants to give sports a try, and he learns that if he's going to make the team, he's going to have to perform at a certain level, or the coach won't accept him, and he'll be cut from the team. It's time for Timmy to go to college. If he wants to get into the college of his choice, he'll have to perform at a certain level on the entrance exam, or he won't get in. He finishes college and gets a job in sales, and he learns that if he doesn't perform at a certain level, if he doesn't meet his quota of sales, he'll lose his job. You see what I'm getting at here? We are raised with a performance-based mindset. Tit for tat. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You know, you go out to eat, if the waitress does her job well, she'll get a tip. If she doesn't, forget her, right? I'm going to pick on Russell. Russell, what can Brown do for me, right? Because if Brown can't do anything for me, I'm going to go to FedEx. You see, it's all about doing <laughs> it's all about performance. It's all about earning a blessing based on obedience. It's ingrained in our culture. It's ingrained in our thinking. And in a lot of ways, it's perfectly okay, you see, because the world has to operate that way or the world would fall apart. Society would fall apart. But here's the problem. Being steeped in this performance-based culture makes it extremely hard for us to understand grace. That's the problem. It's not that those things are wrong in and of themselves. You have to have those things. But it makes it extremely hard to understand grace when that's your background, when that's what you're being ingrained with from day one. And this brings us back to the older brother in Luke 15. In his mind, the father simply cannot bless the younger son in the presence of such manifest disobedience. It's so obvious. You can't do that. But you see, that's exactly what the grace of God does. Not only does God bless people who haven't met the conditions, he blesses people who have done nothing but the exact opposite of what the conditions require. 
This is the way the grace of God operates. And it's the way that grace must operate in order to be grace. That's what Paul says in Romans 11.6. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's what Paul says. If you try to insert a little bit of works in there, it's not grace anymore. It's only grace if works are excluded altogether. Romans 4 Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. See, if you work for somebody and you get your check at the end of the week, the boss isn't doing you a favor by giving you that check. You earned it, right? It's not a favor. It's not grace. You earned it. You worked for it. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It's the exact opposite, you see. When God credits righteousness to people and justification, he, does, he doesn't do it at all on the basis of what you've done. Otherwise, it's no longer grace. Ephesians 2, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It has to be that way, or it's not grace. If you're going to insist on relating to God on the basis of your performance, then there's nothing waiting for you at the end of the line except a curse. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.10. As many as are of the works of the law, as many as try to earn the favor of God from their obedience, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you're going to insist on earning God's blessing by your performance, your performance must be 100% flawless. And no one can meet that condition. It doesn't matter if you're 99% flawless and you've got one little smudge on there. It's curse. That's the only thing that you get. No one's able to meet that condition. No fallen person is able to meet that condition. But there was one who did meet the condition, the Lord Jesus Christ. So give up on your striving and rest in Him. Rest in the one who has met the conditions in your place. And the same goes for Christians here this morning. Either Christ has done everything necessary to make you acceptable to God, or He's done nothing. It's either one or the other. He's either done everything or He's done nothing. If your acceptance with God is based on your performance in any shape, form, or fashion, then you have no hope. But you can rejoice because Christ has made you acceptable and lovely to God by His blood and righteousness. You can walk in that grace. Let your joy come from His perfect perfection and not from your imperfect performance. That's where your joy must come from or you will be a miserable Christian for the rest of your days. Guarantee it. You have been made acceptable in the Beloved, Paul says in Ephesians 1. All right, so the first characteristic of the older brother is that he was a despiser of grace. Secondly, second characteristic of the older brother, he's unable to rejoice in the blessings of others. Unable to rejoice when other people are blessed. We see this again in verse 28. It says, He became angry when he heard about his younger brother. He became angry and was not willing to go into the celebration. Not only did he think that the younger son should not have been blessed by the father, he felt like he should have been blessed by the father. 
because of his obedience. So he gets mad when the younger son is blessed instead of him. Now, there's some obvious overlap here with the first point, but I want to expand on this a little bit because this is very practical. Those of us who are Christians here this morning, we need to examine our hearts in this matter because this is one area, I think, where the older brother mindset can really creep in. At least I know this is true for me. How do you respond when someone else is blessed instead of you? How do you respond to that? Do you find it hard to rejoice with those who rejoice? To the degree that you do, it is because you're still being affected by the mindset of the older brother and not being controlled by the mindset of grace. Maybe your family is growing larger and you think, you know, I really could use, or we could really use a minivan at this point. Car's too small, we really need a minivan. Can't afford it. And then you hear about how another family was simply given a minivan by someone else in the church body. How do you respond to that? Do you rejoice with those that rejoice? Do you rejoice in the grace of God displayed towards somebody else? Or do you grumble because you needed a van too and nobody gave you one? Maybe you've been praying for a long time that God would really begin to use you in ministry to advance His kingdom, but nothing seems to be happening. In the meantime, there are others around you who seem to meet with blessing at every turn in their attempts to minister for God. How do you respond? Do you get bitter because God's not using you? After all, you're just as good as they are, right? You deserve to be used just as much as they do, right? Don't you? Maybe you've been praying night and day with tears and fasting that God would pour out His Spirit on your church pleading with Him for a special blessing, pleading for a real revival. And then revival comes to the church down the street that's not quite as doctrinally sound as your church is. And they don't deserve the blessing as much as your church does. How do you respond? Do you get bitter or rejoice in the grace of God towards somebody else? You see how this hits home? (laughs) I mean, this is real. In Matthew 20, Jesus told a parable about some workers in a vineyard who grumbled at the vineyard owner because he paid all of the workers the same amount, even though some had only worked a short time and the other workers had worked all day long in the heat of the day. They're grumbling at him. We worked all day. You can't pay us the same amount you paid so-and-so who only worked for an hour. I mean, that's the way the world operates, right? Can't do that. They grumbled at him. And in response, the landowner, who, who is God, who's represented by the landowner in that parable, this is what God says in response to that. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Isn't it lawful? Perfectly just, you see. I'm not doing anything wrong by, only pay, by paying some the full amount, even though they only worked a little while. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not wronging anyone. It's perfectly lawful, perfectly just. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Literally, is your eye evil because I'm good? That's literally what it is there in the Greek. An amazing statement. This gets to the heart of the problem. If you are unable to rejoice in the blessing of others, it's because you don't understand that God can do whatever He wants with what belongs to Him. And beloved, everything belongs to Him. And he can do what he wants with his own stuff. Also, you don't realize that in grumbling against him, you are actually showing yourself to be perversely evil in the face of his infinite goodness. 
Is your eye evil because I am so good? Now, apply this to the older brother. And listen closely, because this is important. Instead of rejoicing in how good the father was to so graciously bless the younger son, the older brother in Luke 15 instead focuses all of his attention on how undeserving the younger brother is of receiving grace. You see the difference there? Instead of focusing on how good the father is for what he did, he focuses all of his attention on how undeserving his younger brother is. What he doesn't see is that he himself is just as undeserving of receiving anything good from the father. He doesn't understand that the things which the father gives to the prodigal son are not about highlighting the worthiness of the prodigal son. It's not the point of these gifts. It's not to highlight the worthiness of the receiver, but instead to highlight the goodness and the graciousness of the person giving the gifts. That's the point. To God be the glory for his grace, not to man be the glory for his supposed goodness, is the lesson to be learned there. All right, number three, third characteristic of the older brother. He has an outward conformity to rules coupled with an inward rebellion against God. Outward conformity coupled with an inward rebellion. The prodigal son took what he could get from his father and went on a journey into a distant land. But the reality of the situation is that the older brother who stayed home was just as much at a distance from his father as the prodigal son ever was. You see, that's the irony of this whole thing. The older brother was just as far away from the father as the prodigal son ever got in that distant land. And we can see this in verse 29 to 31. I know we keep going back to the same verses, but I think it's important to do that. Verse 29, But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. The father says to the older son, Son, you have always been with me. You've always been with me. And in a sense, that was true on an external level. The older brother never left home, but he stayed so he could serve his father, which is a commendable thing. That's a noble thing to do that. The problem is that the older son was not serving the father out of love for him. He was serving the father for what he could get from him. Verse 29, look, for so many years I have been serving you. I mean, he's, he's been keeping track of just how long he's been serving, you see. For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. You see, the mindset of the older brother is not that of a son serving a father. It's that of a slave serving a master. I've served you all these years. I've served you. Parents, how would you like your kids to say that about you? I've served you all these years. You see, it's the mindset of a slave to a master, not of a child to a parent. The mindset of the older brother is not that of a son serving his father out of love, but of a slave serving a master in order to get something in return. And you see, a master doesn't care one bit whether the slave loves him or not. All the master is concerned about is getting the job done. 
The external obedience is everything. On the other hand, the only thing that the father really cares about is whether or not the son loves him from the heart. The external obedience takes a distant second to the condition of the heart, you see. That was the problem here. So the question for us this morning, the application I think is clear. Do we serve God because we love Him? I mean, isn't that so simple? Do we serve God because we love Him? Or do we serve Him like a slave serves a master with a mere external obedience? Do we pray because we just love being in God's presence? Do we read our Bibles because we long to hear the voice of our beloved? Do we do good to others because we are overflowing with thankfulness to how much good God has done to us? In another place, Jesus rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees by quoting that verse from Isaiah. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. See, that's a perfect description of the older brother in this parable. Honoring the father with his lips while his heart was in a distant country. And surely that's a warning for us as well this morning. Okay, number four. The fourth characteristic of the older brother is a blindness to his own sin. A blindness to his own sin. But he answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. What we have here is a classic case of what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount of needing to take the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly enough to remove the speck from somebody else's eye. The older brother has no problem whatsoever pointing out the sins of the younger brother. He has no problem whatsoever pointing out how sinful the younger brother was. Verse 30, When this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. See, he knows exactly what the younger brother did, and he's ready to point that out to the father, no problem. Notice here that he even distances himself from his younger brother in verse 30. He doesn't say, when my brother came. He says, when this son of yours came. See the difference? Not when my brother came, but this son of yours. Distances himself. In other words, he's not in the same realm as this younger brother. He's good. He's moral. He keeps all the rules. And isn't the deception here unbelievable? At the very same time that the older son is going off on how sinful the prodigal son is, at the very same time that he's pointing out how sinful the younger brother is, his own heart is raging with anger towards his father, who has done nothing but good. We see a similar thing in Luke 18, and I want to turn there because I think this is such a good parallel. Another parable that Jesus told, Luke 18, verse 9. And He, Jesus, also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and viewed others with contempt. Who are these people he's addressing this to? Well, it's the scribes and Pharisees again, you see. Same situation. So here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This Pharisee, it says, trusted in himself that he was righteous, and he viewed others with contempt. And at the very same time that he's thanking God for how righteous he is, he's driving the tax collector into the ground. You see the deception here? It's unbelievable. God, I thank you that I'm so righteous and I'm not like this miserable tax collector over here, this wretched tax collector. It's incredible. There's an utter blindness to the true state of his own heart, just as in the case of the older brother. And here's the lesson for us. Trusting in yourself and trusting in Christ are two diametrically opposed realities. Complete opposites. The two cannot coexist. To the degree that you're trusting in your own righteousness, to that same degree you're telling the Lord Jesus Christ, thanks very much, but I don't need you. I don't need what you've done. I can do just fine without you. After all, if you have your own righteousness, you don't need His, you see. But do not be deceived. The tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. I just I love this picture here. I mean, he's just so broken. He won't even lift his head up. doesn't even dare try to look at God because he knows how miserable and wretched he is. But he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. And those four words, rather than the other, are scary words. So in review then, four characteristics of the older brother. First of all, he was a despiser of grace, hated grace. Two, he was unable to rejoice in the blessing of others. Three, he had an outward conformity coupled with an inward rebellion. And four, he was blind to his own sin. And again, there's a lot more we could look at there, uh, but we'll, we'll stick with those four here. But before we close with some applications, then I want to consider briefly the attitude of the father towards the older brother in this story. Perhaps you're sitting there this morning and you're realizing for the first time that I am an older brother. I'm self-righteous. I'm critical of others. I despise the grace of God. I serve Him only externally while my heart is far away from Him. But the question is, now what? Are you simply cut off forever? Is there no hope? Does the Father want nothing to do with you anymore? And to borrow a phrase from Paul, may it never be. May it never be. Look at the Father here in this story. First of all, back to Luke 15, <clears throat> verse 28. 
The older brother became angry and was not willing to go in. But the father, his father, came out and began pleading with him. He came out and began pleading. He's seeking for the older brother, you see. He's seeking for older brothers this morning. He comes out to you. He doesn't stay in the house. He comes out. He's seeking. But not only that, he pleads, come in to the celebration. All day long, I've held out my hands to you. God said there in the Old Testament. He goes out seeking. He pleads, come in to the celebration. If you're outside the house of God here this morning, the only thing that keeps you outside is you. That's the only thing that keeps you outside. The Father comes out to you. He holds His hands out to you. He's, he's seeking you. He's pleading with you. Come into the celebration. But what's it say there about the older brother? It says he became angry and was not willing to go in. That's the issue. He's not willing to go in. He doesn't want to come in, you see. He's not going to join the celebration. But the father comes out and says, come in, join, come in. Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? I mean, why would you sit outside there? There's a celebration going on. There, there's food in there. There's drink in there. Why would you stay outside? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, listen, listen that you may live. I mean, you can almost, just, you can almost see the father just speaking those very words to the older brother. Listen that you may live. Come in. But not only does the father plead with his older son, he offers to give him in abundance if he will only come in. Verse 31, he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Just come in. You can have it. I mean, it's wonderfully ironic here, isn't it? The older son was upset in verse 29 because the father never gave him anything in return for his obedience. But what the elder son could not earn by his obedience, the father offers to freely give him if only he will repent and come into the celebration. Again, in the words of Isaiah 55, listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Come into the celebration. The tragedy of the lost man is that he would rather go to hell trying to earn something from God rather than go to heaven accepting freely His grace. That's the tragedy. So if you feel this morning that God is exposing you as being an elder brother, take heart. He only exposes you in order to draw you to Himself. That's the only reason why. He comes out to you pleading with you to join the celebration. Stop trusting in yourself in your own righteousness, and delight yourself in His abundance. And notice here, this is incredible, there's really no good ending to this parable. You ever think about that? The father's pleading with the older brother, but you never hear what happens to the older brother. It's like Jesus just cuts it off there, and I think He did that for a reason, because He's, he's directing this to the scribes and Pharisees, and He's saying, okay, what are you going to do with this? 
You are the older brother. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? You see, the final chapter hasn't been written. The resolution hasn't been written. We have the climax here, but we don't have the resolution because it's still open, you see. The door's still open for older brothers to come in. How will the older brother respond? How will you respond? That's the question. Okay, I want to close with three real quick applications. Number one, older brothers are just as lost as prodigal sons are. Older brothers are just as lost as prodigal sons are. Prodigal sons look more lost on the outside, but the reality is that older brothers are just as lost in their heart. And maybe you're sitting there this morning and you know you're not a Christian, but hey, at least you're better than so-and-so, right, who's out partying and drinking and doing all that stuff. Or maybe you're a parent with two lost children and one of them is living in flagrant rebellion against you and against God and the other child is at least externally conforming to right, externally conforming to Scripture, externally conforming to your wishes. Be careful. Be careful. You can begin to think that the child who is externally conforming to righteousness is closer to the kingdom than the prodigal child who's off in a distant land. You can start to think that, and it's not true. It's not true. In fact, older brothers, in some ways, are even more deceived and deceived in a greater and more difficult way than prodigal children are because their self-righteousness blinds them. Their external righteousness blinds them to their need. The prodigal son realized he was in a mess. The older brother thought he had it all together. And that's scary. The external righteousness can be worse. Ultimately, the one child is just as lost as the other. And the gospel addresses itself... And this is so wonderful. The gospel addresses itself to both kinds of lostness. It meets the needs of both kinds of lostness. To the prodigal son, the gospel says, no matter what you have done with your life, no matter how disgusting the sins that you've committed, God has made a way for those sins to be completely forgiven and washed away if you will only come to Jesus. So that's the the message to the prodigal sons here. To the older brothers, the gospel says, stop trying to earn God's smile by your obedience. You can never measure up to the perfection of his holiness, and you don't have to. Christ has already earned the blessing of God in your place if you will only come to Jesus. You see, both of them, at the end of the day, they both have to come to Jesus. But both of them have their needs met, whether they're a prodigal who's in a distant land squandering their wealth with prostitutes, or whether they're an older brother looking down on others from their position of self-righteousness. Second application. God is no man's debtor and he will not be manipulated by our performance. Whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, God will never allow himself to be put in your debt in such a way that he owes you anything. Romans 11.35, Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And the answer is nobody. Nobody's ever given anything to God that then obligates God to give something back to them in return. Nobody can do that. No one has ever given anything to him that obligates God to be 
gracious towards that person. Now, the lost religious person doesn't like that, you see, because the only reason that they're towing the line and doing what they're supposed to be doing is because they think that with their self-righteousness, they can put the squeeze on God and force God to have to bless them because of how good of a person they are. And they don't like that when you start telling them that God is no man's debtor. Such a person is deceived and will be sorely disappointed in the day of reckoning when the filthy rags of his self-righteousness are burned up in the flames of God's perfect holiness. On the other hand, the truth that God is no man's debtor should be extremely liberating if you're a Christian here this morning. Extremely liberating. Because it means that you are free from feeling like you have to manipulate God to get something from Him. You're done with that. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to twist His arm. You don't have to toe the line. You don't have to measure up somehow to get in, to get a blessing, for Him to be gracious to you. You've rested from your works. Far from being manipulated by us in any way, God says this in Romans 9. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, when He determines to bless you, nothing can stop that. Nothing can get in the way of that. Nothing can. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and there's nothing you can do about it. And then Paul goes on to say, So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I remember John Piper one time was talking about that verse from the Psalms, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And he said that in the Hebrew, really what it says is, surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. Pursue me. You see that? And that's the idea here. Run after me. It's like you look behind you and here comes mercy and grace and it's just running you down and it's going to tackle you. And there's nothing you can do about it. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He's going to chase you down if he has to. Lastly, number three, I want to end. I want to end with an exhortation to young parents this morning, and I'm speaking to myself because I am one. Perhaps it's just coincidence, but I think it's interesting here that it's the older brother who is the self-righteous one. It's the older brother who is the rule-keeping Pharisee. Is there anything to be learned from that? I think there is. And here's what it is. When a Christian couple finds out they're about to have their first child, one of the first things that worries them to death is how are we going to raise this child to be disciplined? How are we going to raise this child to know right and wrong? How are we going to discipline? How are we going to do training? How are we going to discipline them? And you can get so caught up in that, and that's not just with your first child, second or third child, in some ways it doesn't matter. You can get so caught up in proper training and discipline that you can forget to teach mercy and grace. You can focus more on external behavior rather than the needs of the heart. And so instead of raising a child who is sensitive to the mercy and grace of God, 
you can end up raising an older brother who is self-righteous and thinks he's okay because he keeps all the rules. Now, there's obviously a balance here, right? I mean, we know that. But shouldn't we at least put some thought and effort into how we're going to teach our children mercy and grace? And not just how to teach them discipline and rules? I mean, we put time and effort, don't we, into strategically thinking about how we're going to discipline our children. How are we going to do this? Let's get a game plan together. How are we going to do this? How are we going to train them? How are we going to discipline them? Put all kinds of thought and effort and time into that. Do we put any thought, time, or effort into how we're going to strategically teach them grace? How we're going to strategically teach them mercy? They're not going to learn those things from the world. We know that. Surely this is part of what Paul means in Colossians 3.21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. And believe me, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching at myself. But the bottom line is that we need supernatural, divine wisdom as parents. So if nothing else, I mean, something like this should drive us to our knees, asking God for wisdom in the raising of our children. And no matter what the outcome... Our hope is in the God who is able to give life to the dead, no matter how that deadness manifests itself. Whether it's the deadness of a life of gross sin in the distant country, like the prodigal, or whether it's the deadness of a self-righteous religious life close to home, like the older brother. You see, God was just as able to save that harlot in Luke 7 as he was able to save the Pharisee of the Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus. And so, no matter what the outcome with our children, our hope is in God. Our trust is in Him. Amen.